Okay, well, hello everyone. Um, this is a special and unexpected uh, edition of the PLS 363 podcast. Um, as I'm sure we're all aware of by now, um, seems to be some significant um, issues with the network on campus, and they just sent out a message saying that classes were canceled until it's fixed, um, which led me to believe that it's probably not going to be likely for us to meet today, or it wouldn't be till the very end of the class period. So, um, I wanted to make sure we are able to keep on schedule with the course and um, especially after the long break. So what I'm going to try to do is um, give you about 20, maybe 30 minute most kind of summary of, of the comments I was hoping to make today. Um, that in conjunction with the class notes, which will be posted on AIMS and obviously the required. And if you're interested, supplemental readings for this week um, should be enough to bring us up to speed. I mean, this is an, actually a pretty important week. Um, in the course, we are taking a turn into what is kind of the central area of discussion and analysis we're going to be homing in on, which is the kind of arc of development within South Korea. And we're going to be starting our discussion today of a critical juncture in this period, perhaps the defining juncture in this period, um, the rise and reign of former Major General Park Chung-hee, um, who himself is one of the more interesting, complicated uh, figures. And I think um, discussing him as a person and discussing the nature of the regime he created um, is part and parcel not only to understanding development in South Korea, um, but understanding South Korea today more generally. Um, what for all we may consider good or bad or interesting about it, I would say so much of that has its roots in a specific set of political choices that were made during this time. And I emphasize that term political. Um, this class is called developmental politics in South Korea. Um, and um, as we've mentioned um, up to now in the course, what we're going to be trying to do is understand this notion of development from the lens of politics, from the lens of various places within society, not just the government or not just businesses and um, economic elites, but also the experiences of workers and various factions within Korean society, urban and rural areas and their experiences uh, to try to put together a wider tapestry that helps us understand um, development within Korea specifically and notions of development more broadly. Um, similarly, uh, in terms of, of taking, you know, the next um, section of the course will be turning to the 1980s and 90s and, and the course will kind of end up in the early 2000s. Um, even after Park Chung-hee has been, you know, long gone, he was assassinated in 1979, um, even decades after he has been, you know, had left the scene or been killed, um, the influences and effects of, of the, this, these political choices continue to impact South Korean society significantly. And perhaps even more importantly, um, how people and you know citizens in South Korea today think about and reflect upon the park years um, is a major determinant of kind of where they um, view themselves within contemporary politics in South Korea. I mean, um, I lived in Korea for seven years and Park Chung-hee by Korean friends and colleagues have been described from everything ranging from one of the greatest heroes in Korean history of all time to the devil himself or someone one time called him Korea's Hitler, right? And um, those are, of course, maybe extreme um, 
you know, kind of extends the extreme extents of these viewpoints. But I think in some ways that points to how um, controversial Park Chung-hee and, and the remembrance of Park Chung-hee um, within Korean society, like how he still is in some ways present in contemporary South Korean politics. Um, even in some very direct ways, notably um, his daughter, Park Geun-hae, Uh, who was ultimately impeached and put in jail, was elected and did serve for about three or four years as president of South Korea, right? And so not just in a kind of um, way of memory and and imagination, but also in some very direct ways, Park Chung-hee and his legacy continue to play significant roles um, within South Korean politics, um, for better or for not. And, And I would say, after studying these things and and also living in Korea for quite some time, um, if you could give me one question to kind of gauge someone's political attitudes in South Korea, um, you know, just that simple question, Park Chung-hee, hero or villain? And that answer, um, of course, there can still be variation after that, but I think that would tell you quite a bit about someone's political standpoint. Um, Simply that one question, Park Chung-hee, hero or villain? And what I'm hoping... Um, this will afford you the opportunity is to delve into this complex legacy and, and to try to understand how Park Chung-hee um, within South Korea is in many ways both a hero and a villain. And um, often that's going to depend upon where one stands, how one thinks about um, what took place during Korea during this time and, and kind of what outcomes someone values, right? Um, and, and how someone views the kinds of trade-offs that were made during this time. So, um, I think this will be something you'll be asked to reflect upon um, in the first exam. So it's good to kind of put it out there now. Okay, so um, briefly, you know, looking to the notes here, you will see um, it begins with what I call the road to May 16th, 1961, um, in Korean known as uh, Gunsa Jongbyon. Um, and it is uh, the day of um, that Park Chung-hee seized power in a military coup um, with um, quite a few of his colleagues from um, the military academy that they then served together during the Korean War, right? And so a lot of this kind of group of generals and elites, younger kind of officers within the military who would, Park Chung-hee would lead to overtake the government in May of 1961, kind of forged their bonds and, and forged their um, standing within the Korean military during the Korean War. Um, and, but, but, you know, going back a little bit further, I think a lot of the roots for this, um, you know, understanding how the military coup not only, um, came into being, but how it basically, you know, went off with very little violence. There was no civil war. Um, and that in itself is interesting, right? That these kind of young upstart, um, military officers were able to basically seize control of the country, um, with almost zero resistance um, from from alternative factions or so forth, which uh, is again a notable um, exceptional case. Ten, you know, generally with coups, there tends to be quite a bit of conflict, and and again, in the most extreme cases, uh, can dissolve into civil war. And why that is the case, I think, is an important aspect of the story, and one that we have to in some ways, briefly begin with the reign of Syngman Rhee. We're not going to spend too much time talking about him. Um, That is someone we do discuss in in much greater detail in the history of modern Korea class. But for our purposes, um, it's important to kind of 
place him in in the context of this post-colonial um, milieu, right? Within um, what at the time was the Southern Occupation Zone, right? There was no South Korea or Republic of Korea. Um, there was the U.S. occupied Southern region of Korea from 1945 to 1948, and within that context. Um, Singman re-emerged as someone that the U.S. could accept as properly anti-communist, right, and and was willing to um, resist any sort of unification under a kind of socialist or communist banner with um, the emerging power of North Korea and and um, power of Kim Il Sung, um, and um, in in was seen as someone that could be a reliable U.S. ally, but most importantly, because he was not in the country during the colonial period, um, he was not tarnished like many of the elites. Now, now Singman Ri came from an elite family, what we would call a Yangban family, um, but he himself uh, fled Korea during the Korean War, spent some time in Shanghai um, as head of the. Um, provisional Korean government that stood um, in waiting um, during the colonial period, and then went on to the United States and lived for several decades there before returning after the end of the colonial period. Um, importantly, again for our purposes, is that allowed him to avoid the taint of having worked with the Japanese colonial regime that almost every other elite um, and, and person who had any wealth or stature. Um, within the colonial system, obviously had to have some working relationship with them. And this is why we spent uh, a good deal of time, you know, the week before Golden Week, talking about um, Singman Ri, uh, I'm sorry, talking about um, the colonial period and the work of Carter Eckert and how that not only shaped the attitudes of economic elites within Korea and shifted their viewpoint of how to make money and how to be prosperous, um, and how to fit into this emerging global economic order, but it also in some ways faded them to always be held in suspicion, if not outright derision by the public as those who worked with the colonial authorities and profited um, by working with the colonial authorities, right? And so Singman Ri was someone who kind of fit these two things. He was you know, seen as a reliably anti-communist by the U.S., but also someone who wasn't tainted by this specter of collaboration. Suffice to say, to kind of sum it up, I mean, he was a, it was a it was a by and large grossly corrupt and mismanaged government. Um, it basically the re regime was a you know ran by a series of kickbacks and bribes that um, allowed um, you know that allowed um, these factions to you know keep in line and and to. Um, piece together a government. I mean, what he basically did is give the economic elite some political credibility by backing them, and they gave money to his political machine to make sure he stayed in office. I mean, that's a fairly boiled down kind of version, but that essentially was the lifeblood of the re regime. And it was one that where, um, uh, you know, before, but particularly after the Korean War, there was mass amounts of poverty, you know, starvation, hunger. Um, lack of housing, lack of jobs, lack of uh, any sort of industrial or economic progress. So it was a time of great upheaval and increasing discontent. Um, but one thing that did, you know, important for our future discussion that really did take place um, during this period was um, in conjunction with the Korean War, there was a drastic expansion of state capacity, right? That um, very often 
state's development of and, and implementation of kind of military expansion uh, coincides with a massive expansion of what we often call state capacity, right? The ability for the state to to shape and influence um, the country, right? To the, 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 the area it governs. And um, that might seem, well, isn't that what a state is supposed to do? But of course, the ability for states, to, you know, states claim to have sovereign authority and their ability to wield that sovereign authority are very two very different things. And what I want to point out here is that the probably one of the most important developments for the future of kind of how development and in, in the shape of Korean politics would move under Park Chung-hee was the massive expansion of um, the Korean state in conjunction with the um, uh, waging of the Korean War from 1950 to 1953. Um, however, after that, there was a continued stagnation in terms on the economic front and a growing dissatisfaction with what people saw as the rampant corruption. Um, a lot of the corruption was also tied to the distribution of U.S. aid, almost half of the South Korean government. Um, budget came from U.S. aid. So there was a whole host of things that were really um, increasingly seen as as unsavory and disreputable about the re-regime. And it ultimately culminated in the democratic um, upheaval of April 1960, which is still marked and celebrated um, within South Korea today. Uh, ultimately, um, as a result of that upheaval, Syngman Rhee fled, um, left office and, and fled the country, living his last few years in Hawaii. Um, and in for a brief period, a little bit less than a year from August 1960 to May 1961, uh, a prime minister um, named Chang Myun uh, was installed. There was an idea to get rid of the presidential system. However, um, a lot of the inefficiencies and corruption um, that had boiled up during the re regime were not fully stamped out. And Chang Myun never had a real, even though he wanted to, he was a reformer and seemed to be genuinely have his heart in the right place in terms of rooting out corruption, was never able to kind of seize control of the situation and the country continued to languish in some form of chaos. Um, and into that scene um, stepped Pak Chung Hee. Right. And um, as you can see in the notes here, um, you know, the um, what I wanted to use was the reading um, that is part of your supplemental readings. It's from the chapter by Kim Hyung Ah um, on this early years of, of, of Pak Chung Hee and how um, the Pak Chung Hee system that came to be known as this kind of vaunted, celebrated state led development system that we've talked about in the course. Um, how it kind of came into being and how it really wasn't part of some sort of grand rational plan, right? That Kim Hyung Ah, what she's trying to do in this reading, and if you, it's a supplemental reading, so if you didn't do it, that's fine. Um, we're going to try to highlight some of the major points here. Um, but basically, um, what she argues, right, is, and, and, and if you look at the, the point here, right, that the developmental state perspective fails to account for the chaos and uncertainty that surrounded the regime in its first years, right? That Pak Chung-hee and his fellow coup um, leaders kind of stepped into this scene and tried to bring order to, to chaos um, and, you know, sought to present themselves. And they called themselves um, quite literally revolutionaries, right, and that they were going to... Um, 
serve as some sort of kind of revolutionary vanguard to uproot what they saw as continuing kind of corruption and um, depravity within Korean society and shake things up and, and put Korea on a march towards modernization, military strength, industrialization, right? And all going back to these questions of um, how to face these tragedies of modern Korea, right? Being the colonization of Korea and then the Korean War and the ultimate division of Korea, right? That these things continue to weigh um, on the, the kind of minds of Korean citizens. And Park Chung-hee came in and, and, you know, claimed that he was going to clean up society, clean up corruption, and put Korea on a path again towards industrial modernity and military strength, right, as a way to kind of resolve these issues. And of course, um, we'll talk more about this later, but that implied that, um, and in some ways it's still the kind of standing policy of conservatives in South Korea today, that unification can only come through um, strength and having the North Koreans back down or collapse and be subsumed by the North, right? That that, that conservative policy in South Korea from Park Chung-hee up to the present day um, is rooted in a notion that there should, there can be and will never be a negotiated settlement with the North and that they can only be, um, quote-unquote, defeated, um, either through collapse or through military engagement or what have you, but there will never be a negotiated settlement. And so for some, in that way, um, this notion of this military, militarized industrial modernization was seen as, as part of that grander plan to move towards unification. So with this kind of broader attitude of revival and renewal, um, Park Chung-hee steps in. But then um, as all kind of quote-unquote revolutionaries discover, um, then you actually have to do stuff. You have to govern and you have to make decisions and you have to decide who you want to side with, who you want to alienate, you know, these very issues of trade-offs. And um, this is, you know, part of what Kim Hyung-ah said is, is that often... Um, the developmental state literature, which we've talked about, so hopefully remember our discussion of that from the second week of course of the course, which is kind of this major paradigm for understanding development in Korea um, and East Asia more generally, uh, misses the fact that these that this is not some you know kind of clear rational plan that um, she calls it a human artifact that grew out of risk taking experimentation and transnational networks, right? And and from from this perspective. Right. It wasn't some sort of, you know, rational or clear set of like economic coordination or something that as as imagined by the developmental state, but something that in some ways, um, you know, Pak Chung-hee and his associates kind of stumbled into. Right. And, and it's not to say they didn't try things, but it was much more trial and error. Right. It's the kind of process that she describes. Right. And um, importantly, what she really points out is, it, is that in the earliest days of the regime, the concerns were far more political, right? That Park Chung-hee wanted to eliminate rivals in other factions of the military or potential other sources of power within Korean society. Um, he, you know, there was, they fired 40,000 civil servants um, to kind of remove any potential sources of opposition within the government. Um, they went on this process of rounding up people they claimed to be undesirable. Um, and Park Chung-hee placed um, pretty much full control of the government under this council that he sat on top, which was called the Supreme Council for National Reconstruction. Um, and that would serve as kind of the 
um, hub of the regime's rule and in a place where Park sought to put people that he was connected with. And, th- and this is a, a broader part of kind of Korean history and culture that um, certainly plays out here is that Park used the Supreme Council um, for National Reconstruction as a location to put people that came from his region, right? The Daegu, um, Gyeongsang region. We can look at a map um, of, of Korea um, when we're in class next week to kind of you know, break this down. But it was a way for Park, you know, these regional ties and, 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 and you know, often these regions share, um, not often, they share dialects um, of Korean that connect them. And um, there's a sense of, of, you know, commonality or or community that exists among people from these um, specific regions that uh, establish trust and and some sort of sense of connection. And so um, we can see this play out in that many people that Park surrounded himself were from this Gyeongsang region, the southeastern corner of the Korean Peninsula. And specifically what he who he tried to move against, um, a lot of the old guard elite in the South Korean military were actually people who originally came from what was then North Korea, right? And so there, that was a kind of a faction of more of the kind of traditional professional class, um, older guard um, military elites. And Park worked to use this SNCR to sideline them, right? And so a, a lot of this, and, and all is a way to say that he didn't come in and start, even though he was talking about an industrial revolution and, and revolutionizing the Korean society in terms of its culture and work ethic and all of these things, um, the first few years of power were really, first few years in office were really focused on solidifying his power and his control over the various levers of government. One of the more interesting points that I think um, Kim hyung ah makes in the chapter um, is that one of the the things that really, you know, proved to be beneficial to Park and perhaps would be something that um, would be an asset to him over the next near 20 years of his rule is that he didn't come, unlike communists or maybe even a, a ardent capitalist or, um, you know, different kind of ideological background. He didn't, or maybe a royalist or someone who believes in the monarchy or what have you. Um, he didn't come with an overarching kind of firm set of ideologies, right? His his ideology was basically to um, ensure his power and control and to wield that power to revive Korea in a way that was um, made it what he saw to be stronger and more kind of um, military-minded and more industrialized, and and to and to and to do that, he was um, willing to use a host of different approaches that might be considered communist or socialist or capitalist or what have you. Right? He Confucius, and you know, and Confucian in some senses, as we'll see in later parts of the regime, he starts to embrace kind of Confucian um, precepts. Right? And all is a point, all is a way to say that he wasn't really tied to a specific ideology. And in some ways that gave him a lot more maneuverability than if you come in with this rigid view of, of how things need to be done or um, some sort of ideological program that you have to kind of conform to. Um, and this was the kind of freedom um, that allowed Park to do kind of these mixed sort of things, right? That um, he, you know, on the one level, um, arrested all of the wealthiest people in Korea for corruption. Now, I mean, in some ways, corruption was so rampant under Ri that anybody who was doing business was engaged in quote unquote corruption, right? I mean, there becomes a point where I don't even, you know, if it even can be called corruption anymore, it becomes a question because it's so bound up with the system. 
Um, so he arrests all of these people. He puts them on house arrest, and he basically says that I'll let you go and I'll let you keep your businesses. Um, maybe you have to pay some fines and make some sort of public kind of apology. But um, when you get out, you're going to need to follow, you know, and work in collaboration with my development agenda and goals, and be willing to do and enter do things and enter into industries that are in accord with my interests and wishes. And so in some ways, we can see that, you know, he's acting as a kind of authoritarian arresting these people. He's acting as a kind of communist or socialist, maybe trying to centralize economic planning. But he's also acting as a capitalist because he does indeed let them go. And they continue to um, operate in, in many ways, independent private businesses. Right. And, and, and contain, retain control of their private property. Right. And so this very act kind of gives an idea or a flavor of how Park was willing to kind of pull in different aspects of, of varying ideologies, um, you know, statist kind of authoritarianism, uh, socialism and capitalism all in this one maneuver. Right. But even after doing this, right, um, how this should be done, right? It's one thing to say, okay, I want to coordinate industrial activity. Great. But what, in what way that should be done remained very open-ended and in some ways um, subject to debate and confusion um, within the South Korean government, especially during the first few years after the coup. Um, what's really interesting is, is in terms of Park Chung-hee, his original kind of idea for Korean development was to focus on agriculture, boosting agricultural production, selling crops overseas, and then using that money to build industry, which was in some ways a, a kind of central um, view of more land-based um, East Asian views of development, perhaps, you know, very much the Chinese Communist Party would try to um, engage in this sort of action and, you know, notoriously and, and in some ways horrifically um, through a policy called the Great Leap Forward um, that obviously led to the deaths of tens of millions of people. Uh, in some ways, Park was originally, and, and he came from a rural agricultural region, region which might have been part of it, but ultimately he was persuaded to shift after, after you know, some of these ISI policies and, and policies rooted in a more agricultural approach started to flounder. He was persuaded by increasingly by um, these more technically oriented economic bureaucrats to focus on exports, to focus on making things in industrial products and manufacturers and selling them overseas and using that money to further upgrade industrial um, capacity. And in the process of shifting over to this kind of approach, um, Kim hyung points out that a lot of the innovation originally came from the business, the, from the companies, from what we came to be, what we come to be known as the Chaebol, these large um, Korean conglomerates, right? And that a lot of the um, innovation in terms of developing these export-led systems was not um, from a kind of top-down centralized planning um, system as the developmental state approach to Korean development envisions, but actually was much more a product of ideas developed at the firm level um, filtering back up to the central government. But to kind of bring this back together or to, to tie some of these things together, what, what I think this shows is that the first few years um, of the Park regime continued to be very volatile and um, rife with kind of factional strife between different parts of, of the military, different parts of the economic elite. 
And perhaps the one thing that Park was most successful at was um, quite literally eliminating or marginalizing his rivals, right, and, and centralizing power. And so by the time we get to 1963, um, when he finally is um, accedes to a demand by the U.S. government to um, hold elections, that he is in, in well entrenched in power and able to um, run in a reasonably fair and open presidential election and win quite easily, right? And so um, part of that is Park was still um, at this time quite popular um, amongst people. And also he had, again, successfully eliminated um, a host of rivals or um, put them in kind of subordinate positions and was able to concentrate power. And this would be the central power that Park, as we go through the 1960s and into the 70s, would, would serve as the resource he would draw upon to shape and direct Korean development. And, and Korea would begin to increasingly take on the form of this developmental state um, that um, scholars who favor that approach talk about. And I, I think that's what the, the service or the value of Kim Hyung-ah's um, chapter, among among many others, is that it gives us some, some you know, this important two or three-year period was one where many possibilities were still open and politics can be often a process of closing out possibilities. And what Park did during this period was maneuver um, politically within the political economic you know, system within Korea, within, within the public too, through speeches, through writing books, through trying to um, bring people over to his vision of the future of South Korea, was able to kind of centralize or power and put himself in somewhat at the driver's seat of the Korean political and economic system. And it was that resource um, more than anything else that really enabled him to further implement his vision of a kind of Korean developmental program. Now, on, in context of vision, um, as you'll see in the notes, and that was the required reading for this week, um, I think there's an excellent um, you know, the, just the, the chapter by Moon in June that was required for this week, I hope you were able to read it. I think it is one of the most important and interesting perspectives on Pak Chung-hee that I've read. And in some ways, that, that's where we kind of leave off here with this notion of vision and where did that vision come from? And, and for um, Moon in June, um, they're going to trace this all the way back to Pak Chung-hee's um, service and, and training and service within the Japanese Imperial Army, his training at the Manchukuo Military Academy, and the values and that, that were instilled in him when he was taught that he was at the vanguard of this kind of East Asian revolutionary force, a soldier in the Meiji Army as he was trained, um, and that the values and perspectives that he took from this experience within the Japanese Imperial Army were indispensable to understanding the vision and idea that he brought to bear um, on Korean society, for better or for not. So please read through those notes. Make sure um, you take a look at that reading. Um, you know, I don't want to spend too much time with the podcast here. We can talk more about that in class next week. Um, we're still going to be having book club, I would imagine. Um, the internet will be working. Oh, it seems like it's working now. Um, it's 9.47 here when I'm recording this. So, um, But I will upload this podcast now that the internet is working. We're still going to be having book club on Wednesday. I'm looking forward to that. Or I'm sorry, on Thursday. Um, thank you so much for tuning in. And I look forward to seeing you in a few days. Mm -hmm.